Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Questions. My name is Nathan Elam. I'm here with Pastor Joel, and we want to take a quick moment to remind you to subscribe to our YouTube channel, like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram and Twitter, and we would love to connect with you in the future. Uh, today, Pastor Joel, we have a question from Troy, who writes in and says, Is there a correlation between assurance of salvation and sanctification? Does a believer's growth in sanctification produce an increase of assurance? And also kind of a second question. Also, does a lack of assurance stunt a believer's ability to grow in sanctification? Pastor Joel, Mm -hmm. what does the word have to say? Yep. Great question. Uh, Thanks, Troy. Yeah, the answer, uh, the brief answer is yes to all of those questions. Uh, There is a correlation between assurance of salvation and sanctification and a lack of assurance will stunt um, a believer's sanctification, their process of being um, increased into the likeness of Christ by the work of the Spirit. And um, yeah, if, uh, if a person is not, is not assured, if they're not um, convinced, if they don't have some measure of confidence that they do, in fact, belong to Christ, um, they are going to be hamstrung. They're going to be stunted in their ability uh, to grow in Christ's likeness. And so let, let me read a couple things that I prepared in order to answer this question. Uh, first, let's just uh, look at some scripture. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Um, it says, But I, this is the Apostle Paul, the human author, writing to the Corinthian church. He says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are still not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? A little later on, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15 through 20, the apostle again writes, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined with the prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one in spirit with him. So flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the the one who sins sexually sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? Therefore, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Now, I've written in my notes here just a brief paragraph. I've written this. The Apostle Paul achieved a level of sanctification in this life that was matched by few, if any, apart from Jesus Christ, of course, being the God-man, fully righteous, um, apart from Christ. I think Paul was likely the most holy, sanctified individual to walk planet Earth. Therefore, taking that into account, it is safe to assume that virtually no one cared as deeply about personal holiness as Paul did. It is also true that the Corinthian church possessed a level of spiritual immaturity among the New Testament churches that we have record of, that was matched by few, if any. Therefore, it's safe to assume that if there were any church that the Apostle Paul, who cared so deeply for personal holiness and sanctification, might be tempted to withhold assurance from, it would be the church at Corinth. And now going back to these texts that I read previously, I want, this is what I want you to see. 
In 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3, the Apostle Paul is rebuking, he is chastising the Corinthian church for their spiritual immaturity. He, he says to them, I couldn't address you as spiritual people. Uh, the, what he's saying there is, I, I couldn't address you as those who are spiritually mature, but rather I had to address you as those who are carnal, fleshly. And then he goes further. He says, not just as those who are fleshly, but, but by contrast, rather than addressing you as those who are spiritually mature, I had to address you as spiritual infants, as babies. I mean, this is insulting. And it's not sinfully insulting. Paul's not sinning by saying these things. He's right to say these things. These things are true in the Corinthian church in the midst of their immaturity desperately needs to hear this correction, this rebuke from the apostle Paul. But notice what he says. I couldn't talk to you. I couldn't address you as those who are spiritually mature, but rather you are people of the flesh. You are spiritual infants. But the next two words, spiritual infants in Christ. In Christ. And he talks about how they need milk, even though they should be prepared by this point in their spiritual walk with Christ to receive solid food for meat, and yet they're still not. They need to receive milk. And he goes on chastising and rebuking them. And yet in the midst of Paul's very sharp rebuke to the very immature Corinthian Christians, he still says, you guys are spiritual babies in Christ. You guys are fleshly, fleshly brothers in Christ. Same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now he's chastising them not just for spiritual immaturity in a general sense and strife and jealousy as he does in 1 Corinthians 3, but now later in 1 Corinthians 6, he's chastising them um, for their tolerance of the specific sin of sexual immorality. Uh, as we saw just one chapter earlier, or as you would see if you look at the context as a whole, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, they tolerated a man who was engaging in a degree of sexual immorality that was unheard of even among the pagans. This was a man who was sleeping with his father's wife, with his stepmother, and, and was boasting about it publicly to the whole church. And the church rather than expelling this immoral brother, rather than exercising biblical church discipline, rebuking him, correcting him, the church was bragging about how accepting they are. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> I mean, this is the Corinthian church, American church, you know, same difference, right? <laughs> I mean, they're bragging about rather than saying, hey, we've got a guy sleeping with his stepmother. This is bringing reproach upon the good name of Christ. This is an embarrassment. This is shameful. We need to purge the evil one from among us. We need to put him under church discipline, hand him over to Satan, that, that his body might be destroyed, his flesh might be destroyed, but that his soul might be saved on the final day, as Paul says elsewhere. Rather, rather than doing that, their immediate default instinct is we've got a guy who is publicly known as being just absolutely atrocious in his wickedness. What a great poster child for our church so that we can advertise to everyone in the city of Corinth how accepting and tolerant we are. I mean, the Corinthian church is horrible. Absolutely horrible. And so Paul deals with that in 1 Corinthians 5. Expel this immoral brother. Hand him over. And not because we don't love him, but it's tough love. We're going to hand him over, remove him, treat him as an outsider so that he might come to his senses, so that God might use this discipline in order to produce the fruit of repentance, so that he might one day be welcomed back. And we see that actually in Paul's second letter 
to the Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul implores the Corinthian church to welcome, to receive back this man that they recently, that they previously uh, removed. So that's 1 Corinthians 5, a man with just an incredible degree of sexual immorality, and the church is bragging about it, right? It's really for the church, it's the corporate sin of antinomianism. They are, they are lawless. They have a low bar when it comes to personal holiness. They are exercising moral mediocrity and boasting about it as though it were a Christian virtue. They're very much like the American church. Now, that being said, Paul corrects that in 1 Corinthians 5, and then he begins, as it were, it seems that he begins to start to poke and prod at sexual sin in general that might be found not just in this one individual man, but in the rest of the church. So, that said, 1 Corinthians now, chapter 6, verse 15 through 20, he says to the church, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Notice what Paul's doing, right? So he, he chastised the Corinthians in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians. He says that you're filled with strife and jealousy. You're fleshly, you're carnal, you're babies. You are spiritual infants. That's not a compliment, but you're infants in Christ. So he rebukes them sharply and yet assures them. That's the point. Assures them in the midst of the rebuke. He cannot even rebuke the Corinthian church, which is historically, it is the most immature church that we have record of in the New Testament. So we have the, the, the most sanctified man, namely the Apostle Paul, and the most fleshly, carnal, immature church, namely the Corinthian church. The Apostle Paul radically sanctified with a profound and deep concern for personal holiness, writing now, to a church that is spit on holiness, that is slapped holiness in the face, if you will. It cares little for morality, cares little for righteousness, cares little for obeying the clear commandments of Christ. And the Apostle Paul, who is profoundly concerned about personal holiness and sanctification, and the Corinthian church that is radically spiritually immature, the Apostle Paul would be tempted, if ever, Surely, in this particular case, he would be tempted to withhold assurance. And in the midst of every single, not just compliment or encouragement, but every single rebuke and correction, he cannot even finish a rebuke without assuring the Corinthians in the same breath. You're infants in Christ. You're fleshly, brothers. You're uniting your bodies with a prostitute. And that's wrong because your bodies belong to Christ. <laughs> I mean, look at it. Catch, catch the theme here. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now look at, look at verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is within you? I mean, you want to talk about assurance, right? We, I, th I think we just, we skip over this. We don't recognize how much encouragement is implicitly packed into this rebuke. What's the apostle saying? He's saying, you're sexually immoral. Get with it. Shame on you. And yet in the very same breath, he's saying with apostolic authority, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. AKA you are a bona fide Christian. 
you belong to Jesus. Why is it so atrocious, Corinthians? Why is it so atrocious for you to engage in sexual immorality with a prostitute? Because the Holy Spirit dwells in you. And he goes on in verse 20, he says, for you were bought with a price. Look at that. You want to talk about assurance? You were bought with a price. What price? He's talking about the blood of Jesus. And then what is he saying? The second half. So the first half of 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20, you were bought with a price. The second half, so glorify God, not just in theory, not just in spirit, but with your body. He's saying, look, here's the commandment, Corinthian church. Personal holiness requires body and soul. It's not just theoretical. It's not just, well, spiritually, I'm really devoted to the things of God. No, no, no. With your actions, with your behaviors, with your own flesh and bones, with your body, live righteous lives. Live in obedience to Christ. That's the commandment. That's the imperative. If we use that language of indicatives and imperatives, right? So 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20, second half is the imperative. Second half of that verse, glorify God in your body. That's the imperative or the command. Glorify God in your body. What's wrong with you, Corinthian church? Do what's right. Obey Jesus. Don't just obey him in theory, not just with your mind, not just with your spirit, but with your body. That's the command. That's the imperative. But the indicative, that is the motivation for obeying that command, is in the first half of the verse. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20, first half. Why should you honor God with your body? Why should you obey? Because you were bought with a price. So what is he saying? He's saying, Corinthian church, Jesus purchased you with his blood. That's assurance. I mean, that's an apostle of Christ, an eyewitness of the resurrected Lord, telling a group of believers with confidence and persuasion, Jesus died for you. He didn't just die for someone somewhere out there, and you might be among the redeemed. No, you are the redeemed. He bought you and purchased you, and therefore that's precisely why you should be obeying his commandments and putting to death the sin of sexual immorality. So, Troy, to answer your question, Paul is spurring the Corinthians on toward holiness, a.k.a. He is driving them further in the process of sanctification. And what does he use as the fuel in the tank of this sanctification car? He uses the fuel, the gasoline of assurance. You're in Christ. You're infants, babies in Christ. So grow up. Your brothers in Christ. So be spiritual, not fleshly. Uh, the spirit of God dwells within your body. So avoid sexual immorality. You were bought by the precious blood of Jesus. So glorify God with body and soul. Like at every single level, he's saying grow in sanctification because you're a Christian. So what he's doing is this. He's saying grow in holiness because you're saved. Grow in holiness because you're saved. See, what the apostle understands is what we must understand. There is an inseparable correlation that exists between assurance and sanctification. 
the fuel that drives us forward in the process of sanctification, in that lifelong process of being formed more and more into the image of Christ, the fuel that pushes us forward, the motivation, the incentive, the force driving us in sanctification is the confidence and assurance that we are rooted in the love of Christ. And I think, sadly, there's a lot of Christians who are lacking assurance because they're lacking assurance. They're not confident of their standing before God. They're not confident of whether or not they've actually been clothed in the righteous robes of Christ. They're not confident whether, whether Jesus actually died for them. Like the Apostle Paul says elsewhere in Galatians 3, I'm confident that, that Jesus loves me and gave himself up for me. Not just that Jesus loved someone somewhere out there, not just that Jesus died for someone somewhere out there, but that Jesus loved and died for me. And apart from that confidence, apart from that persuasion, apart from that assurance of salvation, the Christian is immediately hamstrung in their efforts, in their drive, in their incentive for pressing forward in sanctification. So we could say it like this. Assurance is the fuel for sanctification, and sanctification is the evidence or the signs of assurance. So I'll finish by saying I would encourage you, Troy, to look at 1 John, John's first epistle. It's all about assurance. It's a short book of the Bible, all about assurance. And what we see is that the Apostle John, underneath the inspiration of the Spirit, he gives evidences, he gives proofs, he gives signs for, for a person having confidence that they actually are born again, that they actually belong to Jesus. And he gives multiple signs, but they all fall into three main categories. One is obedience to Christ's commands. Another is love, genuine love and affection for fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And then another is doctrinal soundness, a, a proper, biblically faithful confession, confession of faith, a confession that Christ, you know, John says that uh, the, one, the one who denies that Jesus came in the flesh is the Antichrist. So implicitly, what he's saying is that one of the signs, one of the evidences that you're rooted in Christ, that you're not the Antichrist, but that you belong to Christ, is that you affirm that Jesus came in the flesh, that he is the incarnate God-man. Um, so it's obedience to God's commands, it's love for the church, love for the church, and it's a proper and biblical confession, particularly with all doctrine, but particularly those doctrines surrounding the gospel, the person and work of Jesus. And so the point is this, all of those are signs of sanctification, growing in doctrine, growing in love for believers, fellow believers, growing in obedience to God's commands. That's all growth and sanctification. And so what John says in 1 John is that growth and sanctification is the evidence that you actually belong to Jesus, a.k.a. Growth and sanctification is the evidence of assurance. And so really what we have between assurance and sanctification is a catch-22. As I've already said, assurance is the fuel for sanctification. And yet sanctification is the evidence of assurance. You'll never have confidence that you actually belong to Jesus if you can't see fruit of the Spirit at work in your life. If you can't see evidence of how God has already changed you and is changing you, 
aka it's sanctifying you, right? So sanctification is the evidence of assurance, but assurance is the fuel for sanctification. And what happens to Christians is they get caught in a rut. They get caught in this vicious cycle to where they don't have any, they're struggling to see evidence. They're struggling to see growth in their life. And therefore they don't have the evidence, the proofs in order to be assured. But because they're not assured, they're not confident of their standing before God, they're lacking the fuel, the, 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 the motivation to, to grow in sanctification. So because they can't see areas where they've been sanctified by God, and sanctification is the evidence of assurance, they're lacking assurance. But because they're lacking assurance, which is the fuel for sanctification, they get hamstrung in their spiritual walk with Christ, and, and they're not being sanctified. It, it's a vicious cycle. It's a vicious cycle. How to get out of the cycle? Well, that's kind of a long answer. Um, but I did write a book about it. So <laughs> I encourage you to check that out. Um, but also feel free to write back in and maybe we'll, maybe we'll do a part two of this in the future. I hope that's helpful. Great. Thank you so much, Pastor Joel and Troy. Thank you for your question. Please email us at contact at rightresponseministries.com. We would love to hear from you guys and answer those questions. As Pastor Joel mentioned there at the end, he does have a book called Am I Truly Saved that dives into 1 John and deals exactly with this topic, the assurance of salvation. So we would encourage you guys to go over to the store on our website uh, to check that out. And uh, it's it's a give a gift and you will receive that book either via a digital download or uh, a hard copy via the mail. So thanks so much for tuning into questions and we'll see you next time. As a special thank you for your gift of any amount, we'll be happy to send you a free digital book from our store. To access this offer, visit rightresponseministries.com offer. We highly recommend Pastor Joel's book, Am I Truly Saved? If you or someone you know has wrestled with doubts about the love of God, this would be a great resource. As a reminder, to get this offer, go to rightresponseministries.com offer. And thank you for your generous support.